Hi, I'm Grant Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine and you're listening to the second edition of the Philosophy Now radio show. Tonight we're going to be talking about art. First I'm going to be considering the new play Wittgenstein, The Crooked Roads, which is on in the Riverside in Hammersmith from the 19th of April. I'll be talking a little with the director, Nick Blackburn, and playing a couple of tracks from the, um, from the uh, thing itself. And then we're going to have a little studio discussion on the philosophy of art. My studio guests are Mark Robert, who's a teacher in south-east London. He's written an article on the forthcoming issue of philosophy now, putting forward a Wittgensteinian view of art, which we'll no doubt get into a little bit. Hi, Mark. Hello there. And Alex Gath, who's a freelance anthropologist, such things do exist, and a long, long-term art enthusiast. Unfortunately, our artists couldn't turn up today, but we're going to have a great time anyway. So I hope you'll enjoy the show. First, uh, we're going to play a, a track from, from the... Uh, or a sketch from the show. Oh. Okay. So beautiful, so beautiful in the moonlight, God's silver nitrate photography. If I were God, I would have created the sun. It's too bright and hot, too demanding, driving us on relentlessly. I'd have had only the moon. <laughs> so then we'd all be lunatics. <laughs> the real mystery, of course, is not how the world is, but that it is. Give me another moment to savour this. Well, I can. Norman, thank you. Thank Lee for looking after me so well. I know I've been hard on you from time to time. It's because I'm always hardest on those from whom I expect most. From those I love most. Now I must leave. I have to return to Europe, to England. This is not my Ithaca. Hi, uh, okay, so that was uh, a little bit of the play Wittgenstein the Crooked Roads, starting next week in the Riverside. Uh, let me tell you, for those who don't know a bit, a bit about Ludwig Wittgenstein. He was an extremely ex influential philosopher of language of the first half of the 20th century. He was born in Austria, but was based in England when he was doing his philosophy. When I say he was influential, I mean that he was influential twice. In his later life, he repudiated his first views of language. Well, these first views on how language works, to give meaning to our thoughts, were put forward in his infamous book, The Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, in which he thought, he thought, to start with, that he solved all the problems of philosophy, obviously he didn't. Uh, the basic theory here was that language creates pictures of ideas, and he also said that all ideas must be, of la must be expressible in language, that, that are expressible in language have a logical form. That is, thought must be logical, but you can't step outside of thought to see logic. You can only express the form of logic and the form of language, as it were. Difficulties with this view led Wittgenstein later into seeing language as a sort of game in which we unreflectively learn the rules of language use as children. In this later view, the meaning of words is how they're used in this language game. This view of language pu was published posthumously in the Philosophical Investigations of 1953. In that book, not surprisingly, Wittgenstein draws attention to the many different ways the same word can be used. For instance, the different ways in which we can say the word thought is used, and as we're going to be talking a little later, the different ways the word art can be used. One famous quote by Wittgenstein is, philosophy is a battle against the bewitchment of our intelligence by means of language. Now, 
Ludwig Wittgenstein personally was a curious man in many ways. A devout Catholic, he was bisexual, although his solipsistic intensity hints of degrees of Asperger's to me, he was fond of letter-writing and punning and was by many accounts a charismatic figure and teacher. His father was an Austrian steel magnate, but he gave his inherited millions to his brothers and sisters to become first a Trappist monk, uh, that's another contradiction because of his language interests, and then a primary school teacher, which he wasn't very good at. Obsessed with logic, his thoughts ultimately tended to mysticism. He made a life out of thinking about language, but thought the most important things were those things which had to be passed over in silence, the aspects of life which couldn't be communicated. The play Wittgenstein, The Crooked Rose, looks at the somewhat contradictory aspects of this complex life of this complex man. So if we can start talking to Nick. Uh, hi, Nick. How, how are you? Hello there. I'm great, thanks. Uh, I've just got um, a few questions about the play and about Wittgenstein for you here. So first of all, Nick, can you please tell us what the play Wittgenstein is about? I mean, what aspects of Ludwig Wittgenstein does it focus on? Okay, well, um, and to start off with, uh, I suppose, kind of another famous quotation by Wittgenstein, um, I think from relatively late on in his, in his writing, there's, there's that thing where he says, if, if a lion could talk, we could not understand him. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you were saying before, this idea of, well, how can you ever um, understand a system without being part of it? Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of crooked road is very much about um Wittgenstein is at the centre of it, he's in almost every scene. Uh-huh. But really it is about the people around him and about us that come after him and how um he teaches us through his kind of frustrations at um how how well or how little we can get to understand other people. Um, okay. So it's kind of a play about, about memory and relationships in that way sure. and, and how on earth we can construct that. All right. Um, irresponsible. Uh, do you concentrate in the play more on the man or on his ideas or an equal mixture of most? And which is the most interesting aspect to you and why? Um, a lot of it is about... I mean, the, the, the man is there. You see him. Um, and you see him over a swathe of kind of from his first meeting with Bertrand Russell to um, the kind of a few months before his death. So it's uh-huh. happened like sort of 1911 to 1951. Okay. Um, and um, and he is very much, and from what we've kind of sort of our own research that, that, that we've done as kind of kind of non-professional sort of theatre people as well, it, it is this this sense of someone who lives through their ideas yeah. uh, and that encounters with him are battles with ideas as much as they are with him mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the um, the most dramatically sort of electric scenes in the play it's never it, he seems like a bully but he's never it's never about him and another character it's never about him and Burton Russell kind of fighting or him and his we, we see part of his, uh, his PhD viva, which is on the tractators, or we see mm-hmm. him with uh, Norman Malcolm, who was um, kind of an early student of his that became um, sort of a well-known uh, philosophy professor in his own right and was, was one of his kind of, I guess, most loved protégés in a way. Um, and we had a bit of a sort of a, a, a late um, theme there that you heard. Um, and that it's kind of, he, he can be very... He can be very cruel and very delightful and very generous, but the the thing that often tips that is how how serious people are, I suppose, or how mm-hmm. seriously one pursues an idea and respects an idea, even when the articulation of it is beyond us. Okay. Well, we're going to play another snippet here. This is uh, you and the writer discussing the prologue, uh, which is... It, According to my notes, it's uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein's mo- lack of misogyny, etc. So, um, here we go. Now, I imagine it a bit like this. That I'm walking along a corridor going to a lecture, a lecture on mind and body, and I have under my left arm a pile of books, and under my right arm... Um, a sheaf of lecture notes 
and along the corridor comes Wittgenstein and he sees me and, he, and, he, and I stop and say good morning and he says good morning Bill, what are you up to? And I say I'm going to a lecture, I'm going to deliver a lecture on mind and body. What is that under your left arm? He says. I said it's books. What do you need those for? And I said well I, I might need to refer to them or to, to, to recall what it is someone says or, or quote from them. What is it under your right arm? Lecture notes. You know, I've, I've prepared them. I've, I've, I've taken days, sometimes weeks, and trying to get things right. And, and I, I, I read them out, and, and hoping that the wording's right. Bill, that's a disgrace. You'll be just cheating your students. You should. Every lecture should be like putting your life in danger, intellectual danger. It should be de novo, from from nothing. You've got to think on your feet. That's the only thing that students will remember that they're worth remembering, that you were serious and you didn't try to cheat them, that you tried to think seriously and deeply about every problem you approached. Just go away, Bill. I, I don't understand what you're doing. You shouldn't be doing philosophy. You should go out and do something useful, something sensible. That will do for the moment. Hi, that was... Uh... The, the writer, William Lyons, uh, discussing the play with uh, Nick Blackburn, who's on the, on the phone line talking about the production with me. Now, mm. now, Nick, what to you is the most interesting thing about directing this production did you find? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, that, the, the clip you just played is actually uh, is, is, is Bill, who ran the philosophy department at, at Trinity College Dublin for many years, uh -huh. um, talking about a waking... Um, the fantasy or nightmare that he has about Wittgenstein now, as and it feeds into the seriousness that we talked about before. And and in a way, the, the greatest interest and challenge for me as a as a director of this piece is is similar to his fear of that we know that we are right that we are, are crafting a, a play mm -hmm. about a figure who would not want a play written by him. But the idea that. Yeah. People are going to dress up and be him and be other people, and we are going to encapsulate a human life in, you know, sort of about 80 minutes in a way that will entertain and interest people. Although, actually, mm -hmm. he loved Betty Hutton films. He loved cowboy films and detective magazines. And he, he, he was into popular um, art in a way, wasn't he? But, which is quite striking considering the, uh, you know, the, uh, the high nature of his philosophy in many ways. Um... And that was very much part of the culture that he grew up in, I think, and the, the circles that he continued to, um, you know, his involvement with the Bloomsbury Group or all of that kind of... He was, he was saturated in all of it, um, and the, the architects and, um, and sculptors and artists that he admired, um, he very much admired, and there was a different... But there was a sense of kind of professionality and then life, and that, for example watching cinema was like, I think he describes it like a shower bath, like mm -hmm. after his, it's in the, the I know he used wonderful to, recollections of, of his life. I know he used to want to go into the theatre and sit in the front row of the cinema so that his uh, total experience would uh, be uh, immersed in the, uh, in the experience of watching the, the, the film. But also that it was really a kind of brainwashing mm -hmm. natural sense of that, that like something would... Um, I don't know whether it's the same that sort of Francis Bacon talks about, you know, kind of great art unlocking the valves of sensation or that kind of thing. But it really was like, I'm, I need to watch drivel now uh -huh. of it will allow me to complete it. It's like watching static on the television. Sort of cleansing his, the palate of his mind. Maybe. Literally, yeah. Okay, what aspects of Wittgenstein's philosophy do you find most compelling or most interesting or even the most significant for our society? If that's not too heavy a question. <laughs> I mean, it... it it is for us, but in a way, partly because the the philosophy of the investigation um, is so is so intertwined with the, with the problems of of life in a way, and that idea of um, of language games and um, and our connections with people, I think. Um, yeah, I don't think he wanted to uh, um, detach philosophy from life. He wanted to make it, you know, it was, it was his life, really, wasn't mm. it? And, it, and it, would be, it would be very interesting to, um, to know more than kind of we have in biographies about the real effect that the, the specific effects that the First World War had on that, 
liking and kind of the engagement. Uh-huh. That whereas he didn't kind of, you know, philosophize with a hammer, he did. He was very involved, and there's something about the philosophy which is absolutely the work of the man, say, who, while working at a hospital, um, came up with a tremendous wound ointment, or that had instructions for the improvement of the field telephones he was using mm-hmm. in the trenches, or it's that kind of... He was a bit of a, a polymathic genius, I suppose. Um, we're going to play now uh, a track of uh, Bill, the writer, d- re- discussing a nightmare about Wittgenstein. It's, it's the other way around. So this next Sorry. track that you'll play will be us talking about the the differences between the kind of his sort of film script version of the beginning. It's the various ways that we're kind of crafting this beginning of the play, which I okay. it, really. All right. The other thing, it, it, it seemed to me f- filmic in that it, it's showing, not saying, very, very little uh, conversation. And a lot of it is him hunched over, engaged in the very last writing he ever did, in fact. Mm. But, and, and it's got a lot of good things about Wittgenstein, the, the, the sort of sli- slightly um, gamey humour that he had about philosophy. You know, that, of course, people think we're mad. Yeah. You know, I, I realise that he's saying, in effect. And but then again, his great dedication to to, to sort of austerity in, in thought and and in and in art. And and he, he often thought that philosophy should be allied to art. He he thought of himself as as, as creating a new style of literary philosophising through sharp, curt images and aphorisms. And here he, he he's actually engaging in in an artistic endeavour when, when he looks at Mrs. Bevan's coat and and, and realises that you know the buttons are are superfluous mm. uh, and they, they ruin the, the the nice lines. And remember, he's a he's a, he's a follower of Adolf Lerse mm. and uh, ornament is excrement. So he yeah. he proceeds to cut. But she she also sees it like she has the insight at the same time. She sees that it is better. Yeah. And and that and that gives him great pleasure. It's it's one of the um, the only uh, sort of interactions with that he has with a woman actually. Is that, is the is that too? Yeah. Except for Lady Otterly. Yeah. Who he ignores. And in a way, they're they're two different kind of violent sort of things towards women, isn't it? It's a kind of... Yeah. He's been accused of misogyny Mm. by many people. Uh, And and Miss Anscombe, people say, oh, what about Miss Anscombe? But but he he used to think of her as as male. (laughs) And sometimes referred to as my man or something like that. so, so you know that that that, that doesn't reinforce the opposite case all, all that well. Yeah. But uh, she was also a, a very good philosopher. So he, you know he, yeah. he, he he took notice of people who were very good, no matter what gender or <laughs> or animal they might be. So she, she earned her place alongside the rest. Mm. But he, he he was very much a creature of his time in many respects. Uh, sounds like we got the order of tracks a bit mixed up there, never mind. But um, um, Nick, I've just got a couple more questions to ask you. I mean, this one is, what sort of experience are you hoping the audience will have on watching the play, and what do you hope they'll take away with them uh, from watching the play? Well, I want them to feel quite... I think they'll feel quite awake during it, when mm-hmm. sort of, you know, kind of lulling you into the darkness and telling you a story, although there is an element of that in sort of any play. Um, that, that we're really engaging and we're engaging the audience in the challenges of, of showing and not saying mm-hmm. um, that Bill was talking about there that ultimately and this is the sort of the, the kind of the human version of that kind of you know of, of that which we cannot speak we must pass over in silence yeah. but, that sometimes one really only understands thing, something by pointing to it rather than describing it um, and we, I mean we're also actually um, we're, we've become quite interested in Probably in, in kind of our own idiosyncratic way, and this the kind of this sort of earlier ideas that also Russell was um, investigating about kind of simple objects, and when one object stands for another object, and all that kind of and uh, a lot of the way that we're doing this is in terms of kind of um, impersonation, and also using kind of simple objects in the play to 
two actors a variety of different things, although that's, you know... So you're sort of showing the nature of a life by showing Wittgenstein's life? Would that be a fair comment, do you think? Um, and also showing the failings and inadequacies of trying to do that. Uh-huh. That it's kind of all right, and it's that it's all right to... Um, to know that there are things which professionally one cannot um, achieve, which in um, a more... Uh, kind of feeling sort of non-professional way one can kind of get to and understand. I, I, I say this because it, 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 it's interesting that um, that uh, William Lyons, the writer, was very keen to kind of point out sort of earlier on in this that he is not, although he is a philosopher, he's not writing this as a philosopher, but it is um, mm-hmm. almost kind of another, it's sort of another life and another kind of voice. And I think that's very much something which involves the characters in the play, people like Russell, who had the sort of, a, you know, a, an almost a film star celebrity life, which Wittgenstein disapproved of. But, mm-hmm. yeah, so that kind of... Um, that kind of vibe, yeah. Uh, it, I mean, there are obviously philosophical implications, like you, there are limitations to what you can uh, you can demonstrate about somebody's life, which would be very in tune with, I guess, a lot, uh, the essence of Wittgenstein's thinking. Mm. Um, before we play a final track, which is um, Sylvester McCoy, who's the who plays the uh, older Wittgenstein uh, in the, in the multimedia production who I should say to, for viewers was one of the Doctor Who's um, may I just ask you is there anything else you'd like to tell us about the play what when does it start how much does it cost you know that it sort of thing at, um, 7.30 in the evening it lasts about 80 minutes um, uh, from the 19th of from Tuesday yes till when uh, until the 8th of May in the Riverside which is in Hammersmith it's on Christmas road and tickets are uh, between 10 and 15 pounds okay that, that's great oh thanks a lot nick here's the final track lovely well, it was the prologue and the yeah. stage direction um and take it quite really take this one kind of quite slowly yes um particularly this bit a bit longer i can hold it sort of here that might be right. oh that's better i can see it absolutely shall i start yes Prologue. Garden in Dr. Bevan's house, Cambridge, March 1951. Ludwig Wittgenstein. Now in his early 60s and afflicted with severe cancer, has gone to Cambridge to seek treatment from a Dr. Bevan who has been recommended by his friend, Con Drury. His health has deteriorated so fast that soon after his arrival he is in effect a terminally ill patient in Dr. Bevan's home. Wittgenstein I'm sitting with a philosopher in the garden. He says again and again, I know that that's a tree, pointing to a tree that is near us. Someone else arrives and here's this, and I tell him, this fellow isn't insane. We are only doing philosophy. A bird in the branches of a tree nearby begins to sing. Wittgenstein stops writing and listens. Okay, so uh, listeners in radio space, I hope that's whetted your appetite for going to see some theatrical philosophy at the Riverside uh, starting from next week. Uh, Okay, we're going to soon go into the studio discussion about art, but first I want to play, well, a beautiful song just to introduce the idea of beauty. This is Song to the Siren. Till you're singing out 
This is the Philosophy Now radio show. I'm Grant Bartley, and that was a song to the siren by This Mortal Coil. Uh, we're going to be talking now to Mark Roberts and to, to Alex Gath about art. Uh, so first of all, we've got Mark Roberts, who's written an article called Let's Abolish Art in the forthcoming issue of Philosophy Now magazine, and uh, in which he puts forward a particular view of art. So if I could ask you to summarise your view in that article, please, Mark. Certainly, yes, um as a matter of fact, I was very interested in what Nick Blackburn said about Wittgenstein's taste in popular films. Uh-huh. And um, I crossed my mind whether he w- had ever seen the Laurel and Hardy films. I presume he must have done. Yeah. Um, because I think there's quite a lot of dialogue in... Uh, I, I'm speaking as a member of the Laurel and Hardy Appreciation Society, uh-huh. I hasten to, okay. to say. And uh, I think quite a lot of the dialogue written by Stan Laurel would have interested him a particular phrase I remember, one of the films, Stan Laurel says, I know what I meant, I knew what I meant, but I couldn't say it. Oh, that's very Wittgensteinian. I think he he might have repaid some Wittgensteinian analysis. Um, And, of course, there's their famous um, phrase, which um, Ollie Hardy says, um, here's another fine mess you've got me into. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think um, Wittgenstein said much the same thing when he talked about his, um, he said in the philosoph- philosophical investigations, he said that the aim of his philosophy was to show the fly the way out of the fly bottle. Mm-hmm. And um, I can imagine him saying, here's another fly bottle you've got me trapped in, mm-hmm. um, rather like Ollie Hardy. OK, so how does this relate to your but, view on art, then? Well, I mean, the, the, the word art and the, all the debate and argument about it seems to me to be a very good example of a fly caught in a fly bottle. I mean, the philosophers are the flies buzzing round in the fly bottle um, because there seem to be so many different ways of defining art 
And, in fact, um, one edition of Philosophy Now was devoted mainly to this question, mm-hmm. and I don't think it really came out with any uh, clear answer at the end of it. So um, my aim in this article was to try and uh, say, see how we could... You know, what was the real reason for this problem over the word art? Uh-huh. And... Uh, in fact, I'm interested also... That you, mean, you mean the fact that there doesn't seem to be a particular definition of yes, art? Yes, yes, exactly, and that uh, art nowadays seems to cover so many things. Um, for example, you know, th- pickled dogs and unmade beds and sharks and uh, so on, and you know, that, that's meant to cover the same um, thing as a constable... View of uh, stuff. You know, okay, hay so so what was so your on. what is your um, sort of response or solution well, to this problem? I was interested in um, particularly in one of Wittgenstein's um, uh, close associates who you were just mentioning, Elizabeth Anscombe, because she uh, was dealing with a rather similar problem about moral mm-hmm. concepts, and uh, she was puzzling about the, what we mean by ought. Um, and uh, it seemed to me rather parallel to the, the debate about what we mean by art. And her conclusion about um, the meaning of ought was that ought was a concept which had somehow survived outside its natural context, and that it had first come into use uh, during the years um, when uh, Christianity was dominant, and uh, more recently, uh, well, in those days, God was seen as the lawgiver who ultimately determined what ought to be done, and that's Mm -hmm. what was meant by ought. But gradually, for for better or worse, among philosophers, that belief uh, uh, gradually declined. Okay, how does this relate to art? But the word ought continued in use. Well, it seems to me that art, the same thing has happened to the word art, Uh that it actually came into um, use as a separate um, concept in the 18th century and the, uh, the range of particular arts were, became separated off and known as the fine arts. That was poetry, painting, sculpture, architecture and music. And they were uh, adopted as a, a special category called the fine arts and they were, um, they were highly prestigious and became more prestigious pursuits over the next century, whereas before that time, arts and crafts were more or less interchangeable words. There was no such thing, really, as art in the sense the rather um, uh, the, the, the present meaning of art, where it's um, regarded with great respect and uh, almost as a holy thing, you know, to be an okay. artist or to create a work of art. Um, whereas in those days, it was just a, a, another craft. You know, an artist was the same... As an artisan, the two words are more or less interchangeable. So you would be, in those days, before the 18th century, it would be quite normal to say that uh, a wheelwright or a shoemaker was an artist, okay, just so as much as a painter or a composer. So the, the word art is quite artificial. Now, Alex, as a philosopher and an anthropologist, I mean, what's your take on what the meaning of the word art is? Um, I agree that um, there's... A uh, worry about it in, along the lines of what uh, Mark says, because I think that if it uh, changes and people start to feel that they're uncertain about whether they're using it appropriately, mm-hmm. then you might get, start to get, and you, in fact you do, in my opinion, start to get a um, emperor has no clothes phenomenon, where some people seem to be using the word art in contexts where other people are not uh, entirely convinced that it should be used, uh-huh. and they may be persisting in it because, to use Mark's uh, idea, they are uh, flies buzzing around in a fly bottle, but other people are not really very happy with it, but feel they have to go along with it because the emperors appear, appear to be saying, or, or the emperor's courtiers, that you now have to use the word art, even though other people are not actually happy with it. Okay, so you both seem to have this uh, agreement that the word art doesn't have any one particular meaning. But if we go back to uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein's view of language a bit, he had this view of words in which uh, words had... The same word would have different sorts of meanings, but they would bear a a sort of family resemblance to each other. Now, is there not a a family resemblance in uh, in the meaning of the word art? Who would like to answer that, Mark or Alex? 
Well, it's very difficult to see a family resemblance between pickled dogs and um, Constable Landscape. You know, it really is stretching things very, very far. And um, you know, the solution I put forward is that, uh, you know, which may seem impracticable, but this is the same uh, solution that Elizabeth Anscombe mm-hmm. proposed for the word ought, and that is to, that we should try to stop using the word art in its present yeah. sense and r- try and revert to the use of arts before the 18th century, where it was just, uh, uh, just like a craft. In effect, try and um, get back to the state where art and craft were just interchangeable words. Okay. And, and in fact, I conclude the article by quoting Dylan Thomas. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one of his best-known poems, he described his work as my craft or art. All right. And that would be a very good example for us to follow. Okay, let, well, let me try this definition of art, then. Uh, uh, it's... Something art is something non-functional or the non a- non-functional aspect of something which is intended to convey information. What do you think about that, Alex? Do you think that's a good definition? Uh, no. Why not? Because I don't think the word information is very illuminating in that uh-huh. context. It simply begs the question: what what is the information, and uh, why do you want to have it? Well, it uh, could be mean any any idea that's supposed to be conveyed from one person to another, for instance? Well, I, I, I think I, I would challenge that, that beautiful uh, art does actually convey information. I think in the first instance it, 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 it causes um, an emotional response more than it conveys information. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I think that the, the question that Mark's point of view raises that uh, most occurs to me is that if an um, old use of a word becomes discredited, it doesn't follow that you can't sort of resurrect something of a new sense or a new use uh-huh. of it. An obvious example would be the word law, which right. originally was moral law and God's law, and then subsequently became scientific laws. Uh-huh. And you, So words can be adapted and find a valuable new role. So how would you adapt the word art? And now that's the question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that... Mark's suggestion about linking it more closely to crafts rather than to so-called high arts is is entirely uh, reasonable, and I agree with it. Uh, But I think that with regard to the arts that get into Tate Modern and other such places, we're probably going to have to um, tolerate uh, dispute. I I think that we're not going to be able to either ban the word or adjudicate about what gets in there. That's a slightly uncomfortable conclusion, but I think it's the reality. Okay, would you like to respond to that, Mark? Well, I quite agree that you can't ban words, but I think uh, if we're trying to do philosophy, then we should be trying to clarify in our minds what these words mean, if anything. Mean to who? To... To, our, to anybody, to ourselves or to... To the person using it. To, yeah. Yes, uh, and uh, unfortunately, you know, we've reached a stage now where art has become more or less meaningless. In fact, you know, I've got a the, the, special... The, the uh, word art rather than the actual thing, yeah? Oh, yes, the word. And uh, I'd just like to quote it's a brief uh, s- sentence from Andy Warhol, mm-hmm. perhaps a notorious person, but anyway, he said, Art is whatever you can get away with. Art is whatever you can get away with, and you know you, how how much you can't get any more cynical than that, can you? Okay, well that brings us nicely to the next track, which is uh, "Andy Warhol" by David Bowie. <laughs> But the people in my brain do 
and you can still have a go. I'd like to be a gallery put you all inside my show. Andy Warhol looks a scream, and him on my wall. Andy Warhol, silver screen, can't tell them apart at all. And he take a little snooze Tie him up when he passed to sleep Send him on a pleasant cruise When you wake up on the sea Be sure to think of me and you You think about paint and you think about blue What a jolly boring thing to do Andy Warhol looks a scream Hang him on my wall Andy Warhol, silver screen Can't tell them apart at all Andy Warhol looks a scream Hang him on my wall Andy Warhol, silver screen Can't tell them apart at Bartley from Philosophy Now magazine. You're listening to the Philosophy Now radio show. We're talking about art here. Uh, that was David Bowie, Andy Warhol. And uh, so the next question I, I want to ask my, my guests is, what is beauty and how far is it um, relative to culture? Um, do you have any views on that, Alex? I do, yes. I, I think that beauty is in part... Um, motivated by what people naturally respond to so it has uh-huh. to do with the um, history of the human species that's to say uh, sunsets and beautiful landscapes and uh, nice sounds and song which appeal to our ears so these things why ca- do they appeal i think would be the question there uh, uh, well probably in uh, originally because uh, nice sunsets um, uh, correlate with nice weather and mm-hmm. so on i mean practical things like that but but one then becomes uh, Conditioned, or the species does to to like those things and find them uh, reassuring and comforting. So and you've got so a on. basically evolutionary view of beauty that we've sort of connect our ideas of beauty with what we've evolved to like or appreciate. Or well, I think that's at the origin. It then gets much more complicated because okay. people have individual tastes that um, vary, of course. Okay, how does that work? How do the Tastes differ from the instincts. Well, that, that's partly to, to do with people's different life histories, so uh-huh. that you like different landscapes according to being where you've been brought up, and so on. Probably. Okay. But uh, it also has to do with their uh, idiosyncrasies. On people have different um, uh, he- he- hearing uh, responses according to whether they've um, got um, perfect pitch and so on. So different pieces of music appeal to them, whether they like high notes and low notes, and uh-huh. so sopranos and tenors, and so on. That's a that's a culture. Cult, uh, na- nurture rather than nature, a I suppose both, you might say. Both, I, I mean, would you would you like to add anything to that, Mark? About your, well, what's your uh, what's your view of what beauty is? <laughs> well, beauty is an entirely subjective, uh, well, largely subjective idea, mm-hmm. um, as um, Alex was saying, can apply to sights or sounds. It's it's a, an approval word. Uh-huh. Uh, and to to that extent, it's a, an emotive so word, which it, is that for, to that extent. Very you're hard saying to, when you're saying something define, is you know? beautiful, you think it's just somebody saying, "Right, I really like this." Or um, is there any other information that they're trying to add when they say that sort of thing? Well, um, no doubt, um, many people uh, would be able to explicate that further you know, and give uh, reasons for their opinion and. That's, uh, and I think the art, uh, the well, let's avoid that word. But the skill of a of a, a, a good uh, critic would be to e- explain why certain things 
are beautiful and perhaps why others aren't. Mm -hmm. But I think that's the nearest one can get to defining it, you know. Okay. I'm sorry, um, that's probably not very helpful, but... Well, that's a start, isn't it? Mm. But um, modern art uh, doesn't seem particularly concerned with beauty. It seems more concerned with um, how clever the concept behind its construction is. Um, do you think art... What do you think art loses by having this different concept that's moved away from the idea of making something beautiful into making something clever or new? Um, I, I think there is a problem there because um, it means that there, one of the things that happens is that there can be an overstatement of the value of novelty so that every artist has to be novel for its own, for, for its own sake mm -hmm. and, and also they have to build up something of a cult of personality so that their novelty has to be the kind of fashionable and marketable yeah. novelty. And this means that every uh, time you go to an exhibition or see a display of art, you have to be confronted with X number of artists' attempt to be novel and provocative. And that's fine some of the time, but it, my goodness, it can be terribly wearing. Yeah. And you want a little bit of beauty there as well. Well, I, I would say so, but... Um the the consensus of the cognoscenti of the art market seems to be uh, rather that it's more involved in theory than in the technical skill or taste of the artist. Um, I mean, how how far is the modern concept of art different from previous cultures' views of uh, beauty and what makes good art? I think that the view that every artist has to strike out in a new direction and be individual, novel and provocative is unusual. I think most uh, cultures seem to have a kind of artistic canon which people um, draw upon and in a certain sense recreate. And it, in fact, when you, you look at art in other cultures, it can seem shocking to us how... Um, uh, perhaps conservative they are, and we don't understand uh, we don't understand that conservatism that mm -hmm. you that you you reproduce things rather similar to what has gone before. Okay, so the, the paradigm for art these days is just novelty rather than okay, this is what we've this is what we've conceived of art before, so this is what we continue to conceive of art. But it seems to me that that paradigm this, this sorry this idea of art being good art being what is novel seems to be itself a, a particular idea of art now um how where where do we go from there in 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 the art world do you think well i i may sound like a, a you know a voice from the, the dark ages but uh -huh. um i i really think that, that as i've said before that the word art has now reached a, a ridiculous stage, you know, really almost a reductio ad absurdum where... What does that people, mean? Sorry, well, can you explain uh, that to your the listeners? Well, uh, it's been pushed to the limits beyond which it makes any sense at all, you know. And when the Tate Modern buys uh, some tins of, you know, what I politely call manure from somebody, and that is supposed to be, uh, you know, a work of art, you know, I think the if that is taken seriously, then you know, art is, um, is a redundant concept, really, and that's really the point I've been trying to make in my article. I, I, I mean, I'm not an art curator by any means, but uh, I think the response to that would be uh, you've got an old-fashioned view of art and the art market has moved on or the view of art has moved on. Now, why would, why would the art world want to go back to the old view of art? Well, I'm sure the art world or the art market, uh, you know, wouldn't wish to do so because it's doing very well out of the present situation. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm trying to work out, you know, from a philosophical point of uh -huh. view, what would be a rational way to proceed. And, okay. uh, I th I, you know, I feel that simply if we could get to using it in the same way as we use a craft, um, then, uh, you know, that would be a more meaningful use of the word art. And then we could... You know, I mean, for example, just in the, for just for a quick example, in the 16th, 17th centuries, they didn't have such things as art galleries or uh -huh. art museums. They had what they called cabinets of curiosities, mm -hmm. and people would go along and to marvel at the. It'd be a collection of, for example, of seashells or 
clocks or precious stones or bits of sculpture. You know, it wouldn't be advertised as a come to our art gallery or come and see our cabinet of curiosities. And then people would go in and marvel at um, you know, novelty then, you know, makes sense. OK. Uh, people would go in to see whatever the latest novelty was somebody had thought up. Uh, and, uh, you know, that would be a legitimate... Um, thing to do and the word art wouldn't come into it well surely art moves with the uh, whatever the available means of production are in the society um alex can i just ask you to to end with uh we're in a postmodern stage of art which means that there are no absolute values in art but i i'm just curious of what would you think would come after postmodernism or where does art go from here um I think that you can always get uh, revivals of traditionalism. Uh I mean, somebody like uh, Prince Charles could intervene and cause that, and that has happened a little bit in uh, architecture and some art. I think that uh, there's a a certain amount, it depends on the market. Mark was hinting at that. Do people still have the money to spend, and is economics still going to drive the art world? There could be a reaction against that. People would say, we want real skill and real technique to show. Well, that's my feeling about art. I appreciate appreciate art which shows technique and and skill and uh, an appreciation of beauty, but I also appreciate that that's not where the art market is, which I think is, is somewhat of a loss to art myself. But, I, you know, I know I don't hold the, the, the majority view or the, uh, the consensus view there. OK, uh, I just want to say thank you to both my guests, Mark Robert thank you. and Alex Gath. Uh, and we're going to play out with a bit of uh, Velvet Underground now, uh, the murder mystery. And a thank you for my, to my listeners for listening, our listeners. Uh, next show is on the 19th of May, and this will be on uh, Philosophy and Children with uh, Pete Worley from the School of Philosophy. OK, bye.